This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network Podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Adam Belletta. Morning, Adam. How are you doing, man? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, very well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to this, to be honest. Um, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. Adam, just before we get into the real thick of things, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm a um, the nice to 14s lead at Watford. Um, I've been there for five years now. Um, yeah, so recently the nice to 14s. So that, that's my role at the club. Awesome. And we'll, we'll get we'll get into that in a, in a little while. Um, but just you know, take take us back to the start of your journey, Adam. You know, obviously we've all come into coaching in in different uh, different ways. But for a lot of us, is you know, not quite being good enough as a player. Um, so we just naturally transitioned to the coaching and obviously as as time has gone on we've recognized there's so many different paths we can go down so what you know where did your journey start and you know what was it about coaching in particular that kind of grabbed you um I don't really know where coaching grabbed me I kind of just started doing it um so I I was part of like one of the first kind of college programs at Stevenage um so before they were kind of in the league and had a a scholarship program and an academy so I was on that on that program that was based out of North Hertfordshire College in in Hitchin, um, and it was run really professionally. And I, I was there as a like a, I suppose as an apprentice as you like. It was like a, a college scheme like you see a lot of them nowadays. Um, but it was very much just training all day every day, bit of bit of college alongside it. Um, there was the opportunity to play like youth cup, FA, um, and uh, like reserve team games. I had the opportunity to play, well, be a part of a, a few reserve team games, which was a great experience, but quickly realised in my first year that I was probably not going to be good enough. Um, and yeah, for whatever reasons, I knew that um, and started to kind of delve a little bit into coaching, started to think about um, how I could earn money out of football, because football was obviously a passion of mine. 
Um, and in that first year, I started doing a little bit down the what is now the academy at, at, at Stevenage. And it was like top sessions and things on a Saturday morning that earned me a little bit of money um, alongside obviously traveling in. I had to drop, obviously drive in or get a bus in or stuff like that. So I needed to fund that a little bit myself. Um, yeah. And then it just went from there, really. It, it snowballed from there. So in my second year, started doing like the development center stuff in the evenings, still did the Saturday mornings. Um, finished my time, my two years, um, didn't really know what to do next. So just went, well, I did quite well in my BTEC, um, went, well, I'll go uni then. Um, like a lot of us probably do go, well, that's the next thing. Um, did football studies, so football studies at, at um, the University of Bedfordshire, um, cause I wanted to stay local. I could obviously have gone and moved away and done the whole uni life thing. Um, but I decided, well, no, I've got some coaching opportunities already that at quite a good level, like development centre level, and didn't want to lose out on that by moving away. Um, and then quickly found that uni wasn't for me. I didn't like just being talked at, um, didn't like the way that you interact with your lecturers and stuff like that. I've quickly found out I didn't like that. So started to have some conversations with people at Stevenage and said, well, I don't think I'm going to go after year one. I don't think I'll continue wanted to get year one in out the way so that if I wanted to go back or if over the summer I changed my mind I had that op option available to me um and then that summer um they said oh on the college program that I just left there's an opportunity to go in as an assistant coach which was like well you do the warm-ups you do some technical work um stuff like that you just be basically around every day doing bits of like, yeah fine that's for me that that's a great start for me um and that was with, uh, it was a, the company that ran it for Stevens was called ABC Sports. And that had some really good people on it. Uh, Robbie O'Keefe, um, Darren Saul, uh, Dave Reddington, that obviously was recently at Palace as the first team coach and is now, I think, in uh, Norway or Denmark. So some really good people to work alongside. Um, but then one of the guys actually left. So the, a guy called Craig Ridehurd left. And they went, well, there's an option if you want to, you can assist. But then you can also lead like the third group. So I went, all right. So I'm a level two coach. I'm about a year and a half older than some of the boys on the program. Um, and just had to kind of jump into it. Um, so every day I was like leading on a on a group that obviously weren't the best, um, but wanted to be part of a college program, wanted to be in education and do football, which was great. And then was assisting on obviously the elite boys, the really good boys, and and working under Darren um, and Redders to, to kind of with the best players. Um, so that was kind of a big, a big jump in, in quite a quick time. Um, so yeah, we did that for, for three or four seasons, and in that time, after about a year, I got involved with Luton, um, doing again first of all, I think it was called Tips. So basically just a, a, a talent ID in the in the community type thing, um, which at the time Greg Broughton was running. So Greg wasn't the academy manager then. Um, and he was running the development centres. Greg then went into the academy. I followed suit, started working in the academy. Um, so again, at like 19, I'm 19, 20, I'm working with some really good players um, whilst doing the college programme. So my whole day is coaching, which is great. I'm leaving the college program, traveling over to Luton, doing the academy boys. Um, so I did that. Um, and then Luton wanted to set up a like an elite under 18 group. Um, so they wanted to have boys that supplemented the scholars. 
Um, it probably still happens. It still happens where I work now. Um, the 18s get taken by the 21s, the 21s get taken by the first team, and then that 18s group ends up with five players. So they wanted to kind of negate that a little bit by having an elite group that was maybe late developers physically or boys that they weren't quite sure on um, and wanted to give a bit more time. Boys that maybe come out, out of other academies um, and hadn't been offered a scholarship and wanted to come onto this pathway. So um, I helped them set that up um, and went full time at Luton, um, which again was great. I was in one place all the time, working with good players, 16 to 18, supplementing um, the scholarship programme. Um, and it was a really, really good time because you had like we had one group of like 18 players who were all of a very good level. Um, and that group of players did very, very well for themselves. There's a few boys that are kind of now playing professionally. Um, one one at Stevenage, Kane Smith, uh, Will Wright at Gillingham um, and a number of other boys that are playing like good levels of non-league now as well. So it was a really good time. Um, I spent eight years at Luton. Um, and then I'd start, well, Luton's a really good club and everyone just stays there forever. Um, so in terms of my own progression, started to get a little bit restless. I wanted to be like the, the, the one of the leads uh, of a cohort, whether it's nines to elevens or whatever. I wanted to to have that. Um, and those opportunities weren't really going to be coming up at, at Luton at that time because of everyone just enjoyed working at the club. It was a good club to work for. Um, so... I decided to go back to Stevenage. The position came up at Stevenage to be the uh, the foundation phase lead. Um, so I went back there um, and spent the best part of three seasons there. Um, and then a 13s, 14s lead role, or well, 12s to 14s, I think, came up at Watford. Um, said, right, well, that's the next step. Bigger jump, uh, better, well, what you perceive as a better academy. So obviously playing that they were in the Premier League at the time. Um, went into Watford got the job at Watford um, and then I've been there now for, for nearly five years um, and my role has changed there a few times since I've been there. I've been the 12s to 14s lead, I was in the 9s and 10s lead, then I was 9s to 12s and then now more recently 9s to 14s. So that's that's been my journey. It's all it's all really been, I've not really had any experiences of, of grassroots football. I've delved a little bit into men's football. I did a season at Hitchin Town in the Evo Stick Prem, which I, I loved but just couldn't fit in with um, all the academy stuff that I was doing at, at, at Luton at the time just didn't quite kind of marry up um, well enough. Um, so I only did a season of that. But again, I thoroughly enjoyed working in the men's game as well and having that competitive element where it's all about gearing up for three points. Um, so, yeah, I've had a, a only really in like elite football. Um, I've not really had much in, well, I've had no experiences in really in grassroots football. So, um my only kind of experience with that would be helping one of my mates when he was setting up the um, the kind of development centres, you know, the, the, at this time of year where they need free school meals. I did some stuff with that and then you go, well, this is this is real coaching because you've got a kid that's very good and then you've got a kid that can barely kick it and he's just there because he likes football or mum and dad want some support in looking after him or her. Um, and that for me was like, wow, that's a, that's a big culture shock, like having to deal with a good player and a very average player and how you keep them both engaged. So I've been very fortunate to maybe not, have, well, fortunate in one way, I suppose, that I've only worked with elite elite players um, and I suppose unfortunately in other ways. Yeah, look, Adam, first of all, thank you for that. There's, there's so much in there to unpack and, you know, 
obviously right at the top of it, I said, you know, about everyone having a different journey in, in terms of how they come into it and how they progress and where they've got to now. And I think, you know, that, that's, you know, again, even more evident with, with yourself, not necessarily having to go through that quote-unquote grassroots kind of experience um, <clears throat> to get to where you have. So, you know, I want, I want to take you right back to the start of that. Obviously, you talked there about your first experiences, really, about coaching players in and around your age. Now, that comes with its own challenges. I've been there myself. You know, there's, there is probably some benefits to it, but there's probably a lot of challenges that we probably don't recognise and appreciate till further down the line. And, uh, you know, with that being your first experience, you know, probably very different to someone who maybe has had some experience of then going into that. You know, some some of us start out at 16 and you might have two years under you, but before you go into a programme like that, if you like. So what, what was that like for you? What, what was it, you know, obviously you mentioned there, a lot of it was really much assisting the programme. Um, in the delivery and obviously they're leading on the on, on kind of one of the one of the, the the secondary groups if you like what what was that like for you you know you get getting your first kind of you know experiences you get your teeth stuck in there it, it was brilliant um like i say it was it was a mixed it was a mixed week every week because that group that i had as like the lead coach um they were playing in a league that was probably too too difficult for them so i think we went six months without a point and that was that was difficult um, for myself because I hadn't experienced that before. And how do you keep the boys motivated? Um, and it was just we had to get them just working harder than other teams, get them fitter than other teams, improve them obviously technically as much as we could each week and each day, um, get get them better tactically and and trying to concede less goals um, and give ourselves a chance. And when that first win came, it was. I remember I can still remember it now and it's over 10 years ago I remember it was almost like a team winning an FA Cup it was like um the boys were went mental um and it was brilliant and that 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 was probably the most resilient I've ever had to be I think in terms of my football journey in terms that was how do you keep the buy in how do you keep them believing in what you're coaching them because what you're coaching them isn't getting them a win isn't getting them even a point um and we would like I said I was very lucky I had a, a well he's still my best mate um, I, I had a guy, Yian Lewis, um, who is the head of coaching at Stevenage, he's still there. Um, and we just worked together on it and it was, we had to pick each other up every day. Um, and Yian at the time was um, a pro. He was a pro at Stevenage and he was just doing it, or he just finished playing professionally there. Um, and he was a very good footballer. So he was, he would join in as much and he would be the guy that drove like uh, the intensity and the tempo and and together we were like good cop, bad cop. Um, and that's how we got buy-in. Um, so, yeah, that was that was challenging. And then obviously I was learning my trade from from Darren and from Redders every day by assisting them and going, well, what are they doing? How do they interact with the boys? What sessions are they putting on? And then just just unpacking it with them. Go, well, why have you delivered it that way? Um, why have you put that session on? Because back then we'd ha you'd have a brief syllabus um but it was more i will identify what the boys need and 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 go from there um and it's like well they need so much where do you start like with the group that i'm leading it's like they need so much so what's your starting point and yeah it was that was that was probably the most difficult time but i look back on it now it's probably some of my fondest times um just because they're not the great people i was working with and the amount of time they spent with me helping me as well they would come out and watch me and go well that wasn't good enough or that was really good and that the way you you, you coach that bit was excellent and you were getting what like your, your old school like level twos level threes where you're getting assessed every 
you're getting assessed every day on your session and going well that wouldn't be a pass that, that it was like that well that's not good enough that's not what we want and without it being uh detrimental to my own learning it was was excellent um constantly on your toes having to plan and prepare and think and like yeah i look back on it with fun times Talk about you know having a tough, tough experience to start out with. You know, probably probably put you in good stead in terms of going forward in terms of how you again interact with your players and I guess dealing dealing with the impact of that because I guess you know for for a young coach um, you know, at, at some point she probably felt oh is, is this my fault? Yeah, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? and, and which which is also a challenge as well because a lot of coaches you know if we're being honest when players don't quite get it right or they're not getting what they want out of it sometimes the coaches can often blame the players, but actually, you know, one thing that's kind of um, worked really well for me over the years in terms of holding, holding my standards up to a high level is if the players are doing it well, it's because of them. And if it's not going right, it's because of me. Um, and, you know, I've always kind of taken that approach and, it's, it, you know, it's, it's done me really well because I'm constantly stretching and challenging myself around how I can further develop it and make things even better for them. But, you know, again, there's, there's so much in, in what you mentioned there in that. Let's let's talk about you know coaching relationships for a second. You know you talk about you and I and uh, working together and having a good cop bad cop. I'm going to go ahead and assume that you were the bad cop. Um, yeah, no. To be fair, it was a bit of both. Um, I think he had a bigger bark than me at times in terms of. Yeah, he'd pretty yeah just a better bark than I did at times for different things. We would we would almost plan it because we needed to, um, and we'd have to make sure because the way we felt at the time was like well if we we've got a ha we've got to make sure it's planned because we've probably not got enough experience of it at that time we've obviously had been on the end of it and the receiving end of it um but then it was making sure that we had things planned and go right well this is how we're going to approach it and yeah it, it worked out it worked in our favor in the end um yeah and yeah but it was it was yeah like i say it was it was a bit of both it wasn't just one person every time Yes, I mean, because that's quite interesting because obviously, you know, one of the biggest challenges, you know, well, let's just, let's just talk typically, you know, a lot of the coaches I've, I've come across and, um, you know, especially through my coach development journey as well, and even my own journey, you know, we, we often start out in situations where we're coaching alone a lot of the time and we don't really have the other person to kind of bounce off in, in some cases and, you know, it, unless we're really uh, deliberate and intentional, kind of informed, we often don't work in collaboration you work like you work together because you're you're there together but actually you know what you often see is one coach leads and the other coach just waits for their turn basically you know what i mean it's kind of right when when do i get my turn it's, but you know that 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 piece around collaboration and, and co-coaching if you like is actually really important so you know, just just talk to us a little bit about that around how you found that and what kind of conversations were taking place if at all any around how that would look because one of the biggest things I say to coaches now that, in fact, probably one of the most challenging skills to develop is that ability to co-coach, where in some ways it requires you to almost take your ego out of it and recognise that there is a group of players in front of you and it's not about you or the other coach. It's about how you can get the most out of each other to get get the best out of the players, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think as I look back on it now, me and Jan were actually about, we were due before before Christmas, to do some like collaborative CPD with our two clubs um, around co-coaching actually, because we thought back on it and went, we were doing it miles mile before it kind of became the option because now you go into academy football, um, 
you do get the luxury of having a, somebody to work with, whether it's an assistant coach, whether it's you're both just working together. Um, but as you said before, it's like you get, well, I'm doing the warm up, so I'll lead that and you just sit back and watch. It's how we want it to be, is how we used to have it, is that, well, if I'm doing that, you're doing the, the other half of it. So if I'm doing attacking, you're making it harder for the for me by getting the defenders doing things better. Or if I'm doing the group stuff, you can touch on some individuals. Um, or you're making sure the intensity is still there while I'm pulling a player out and coaching him. You're making sure that the session doesn't dip and the standards are still there because I think that's what can naturally happen is that, and it happens a lot when you're on your own. You, you want to pull a player, but you know, that part the while you're putting that one player little johnny the other 10 11 12 however many are playing the 6v6 7v7 8v8 whatever you're playing you know that unless you're on top of them at times or you know that you've got those standards instilled in them where you know for 30 seconds a minute it might be all right um that's what your co-coach is for um i don't really like looking at it as a lead coach and an assistant coach it's just your two coaches um and I don't want anyone to feel like, well, he's leading, so I'm not involved or she's not involved or whatever. Um, so, yeah, in those conversations that me and Yian had, it was more just around, like you said, it was going, well, what do the boys need? Who needs what? How are we going to get the best out of that? Well, I'll do that bit. You make sure you're doing this bit. And we just constantly, because we were best friends, it was easy because um, we had a really good relationship away from work as well. So we were constantly talking about well, what, what we're going to do tomorrow. We had that luxury because we get we do we were inseparable really because we were at work together we went to the gym together uh, we went out together we went for food together it was constantly talking so I know you don't get that luxury in 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 the work in your workplace now um, but the conversations were just so informal that by the by the next morning we go well we know what we're doing. I think I think it's a great point. You know, you talked there about you know not not really the idea of lead and assistant coaches, and I think I think it's, I think it's a great point because you know I, I often say to coaches, well, look, well, if you want to look at it as lead, in fact, you both lead, but you just lead on different parts, um, and it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be it shouldn't be like a hierarchical kind of approach to it in the sense of right, this person's you know this person might be the director if you like, but actually we've all got a role to play. Yeah. Um, and it's just identifying clearly what that looks like. So, you know, another thing that you mentioned, obviously, is the fact that you went on, you know, you went through a period of almost six months without getting any points. You know, let's talk, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, you, how, how do you keep those players engaged and, and then linking it back to another thing that you mentioned around, you know, these holiday type camps where you're working with players. You said this is where real coaching comes in. Just tell us a little bit more about that. Um. So the, the period where we didn't go get a point was was difficult, like I say, mentally for, for I think everybody. Um, but we had we had good support in in Sali, um, going, we'll just keep plugging away, keep believing in what you're believing in, uh, and eventually something will happen. And I remember I remember it when we got that win. He was the first person that picked up the phone. It was like eleven o'clock at night, and he went, "How does that feel?" And we were me, I, I, like I say, we were buzzing. Me and Yarn were buzzing because it was like we'd won the game. I think maybe one nil. But it it was like and it, it wasn't even a great goal. It was a bit of a dodgy goal, I think. And we were like, we'll take it. <laughs> um, but during that, like I say, we just had good support around us and went, well, let's keep plugging away. Let's keep making them better at how they defend as a unit. Um, and just being fitter and harder working than other teams, being just a bit ugly, I suppose, is the, is the best word. Um, 
and just making games difficult. And I think, I think if you look sometimes look at academy football, that ugliness goes at times. You go, well, oh, we're just not good enough at building. Well, well, how do you earn the right to build or play through or play round and over? Sometimes you have to just match teams physically or be better than them physically or work harder or make the game a little bit scrappier to break their momentum and their tempo. And then that gives you an opportunity to get a foothold in the game. And I think that's probably what that period of time taught me was, was that that's, that's what we have to get done. You just have to match them physically or outwork them and think good things will come from that. And eventually it did. Um, so that that was that kind of time. Um, and like I say, just the support network around me as an individual and me as a coach at that time was was brilliant. Um, and then... Yeah, when I say about proper coaching, I just think I've been very fortunate that the, the gap that I have between the best player and the worst player is is minimal. Uh, and on another day, could that role can flip. The, the one that was the worst on Monday might be the best on Tuesday. Um, and, and trying to differentiate is a lot easier because the differences in technical ability, game understanding is, the, the, the I suppose the biggest problem we get, I get, is, well, I've got, in the 40s, I've got a lad that's six foot three and I've got a lad that's five foot one. And that's probably my biggest challenge. Well, how do I make sure that they're both getting what they need? Because matching them up, there's going to be some trade-offs, but is it beneficial for them at that time um, and planning that? Um, but yeah, having to go in and go, well, how do I keep that really good player engaged in this game that we're doing without going, well, this is too hard and having that that challenge point that is correct for both players and how he might have some extra individual challenges because he's the best player in that little group. Um, and he's just maybe picked up the first part of the game and the practice that we're doing um, and realising it's from A to B to C to D and then he moves or whatever. Um, that was my first experience. And that, but that probably only happened three or four years ago where you're going in and I'm going, wow, what is this? <laughs> so, um, Obviously, you see it when you play grassroots teams um, because we do play grassroots teams in academy football and you see the difference in levels. But then when you have to coach it, it's it's challenging and fair play to those coaches that are doing it for either because their kids playing in it or that's their, their start of their journey or it's their private business. It's it's difficult. And I take my hats off to them because it's not not an easy challenge. 100%. Let's talk about that a little bit more because, you, you know, you're quite right. You're quite right. You know the challenge in terms of the variations that you might come across in terms of players might be much more, let's just say, vast. You know, in, in uh, grassroots football as opposed to academy football, where you'd like to think everyone is kind of on a similar playing field. Um, obviously, they're all going to have their individual differences, their strengths, and areas for development, but they're largely at a certain level. What you, you know, what would your what would your thoughts be on the idea that maybe because of that reason? That some of the coaches are a bit too relaxed, or maybe not as effective or impactful as they as they maybe should or could be in academy football, because that's the challenge as well. Coaches can sometimes think, "Oh, yeah, the players are good enough. I'm just going to put them through some practices." Um, and from my experience and my observations over the years, I often look at some of our people. Well, when are you actually going to coach the kids? Yes, we get that they're good. That's why they're in the building. But how do we get them to become even better without just running through practices? If that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's that. There's this, it's the niche at the minute, isn't it? Going of having a very player-led approach, and I think that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a skill 
to have player led, but without it just being you have facilitated something, right, there's the game, go play. And then actually you just step back and all you're doing is making sure that nobody's getting injured and you're refereeing the game. Um, I think that's the real skill of, of the coach is going, well, yes, I'm going to do some player led stuff, but I know when to step in. I know when I'm not getting the right returns from it. Um, yeah. So in terms of, of that, I think, I think it's, that's the niche at the moment is having a very player led approach. And unless you've had lots of experience of it, I think that's what happens is it, you just facilitate and it looks nice to the naked eye and it looks nice to me with the parents. Um, but then I don't think you can maximise the returns. Of course, if the kids are playing football, if you just put on a game, they're learning. They're learning something. They're getting better at something. But you probably haven't maximised that that opportunity at that time. Um, and obviously, in a, in academy football and any and any level of of coaching, you've only got them for so long, um, and you you've only got so much time to get them to the next level, especially in academy football. So every moment is is key. And obviously, we. I try, there, there are elements of the week where I go, actually, I just want them to play because they're kids, especially with the nines to kind of twelves. I do want them to have that element of going, well, right, for 20 minutes, half an hour, that session is planned. Just let them play. Make sure make sure the intensity is right. Make sure they're trying to do the, the things that we want them to do in terms of the philosophy that we have. Don't let it just become a free-for-all. But just let them play. And sometimes you see some of the best stuff come out of the individuals because they'll show you something that they've not shown you before. They'll try something that they've not tried before because you're not always going, don't do that or do it this way or try that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my my take on it. Hopefully I've answered your question. Yeah, I think so. I'm glad you mentioned the point around player leg because it's been a topic of debate with, uh, with a few different people I've spoken to recently around... <clears throat> Uh, you know, I guess a few observations is around everyone saying they want to be player led, um, but I think people sometimes get misunderstood, mis, mis, uh, yeah, misguided or misunderstood the differences between player led and player centred. You know, player led is great, you know, within reason, um, but ultimately, is it, is it player centred? I think we can fall into a, into a trap a little bit where, like you said, we're not maximising our maximising our time with the players and having the best impact possible. And just just because something's working well or something's working okay, doesn't mean it's working the best. If that makes sense. And you know, what, what would your what would your thoughts be on the idea that you know everyone's banging on about player led, but actually once they get to fifteen, sixteen, kind of goes out the window. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think um, fifteen, sixteen. You're probably trying to teach them what they need to know. Is it becomes a bit more right? These are these are your, maybe your shortcomings, or this is what you're really good at. Do lots more of that. This is what you're not quite good enough at yet. You need to get better at that. Um, I think from what I've seen across, I've been lucky enough to go. I've been at a couple of academies, and I still get to go and watch other academies work. There is some really good work being done around player-led stuff with those older age groups. Around maybe it's their individual learning plans. Um, whether it's um, the conversations that they're having in that social corner, um, them being able to lead on, whether it's analysis. I know that the 15, 16 guys at, at the place I'm at, they, they do some really good stuff with the players unpacking their game and their match analysis and go and have, have those conversations with each other because that's difficult now. I think kids don't, kids of this, this generation are, are very much, well, 
don't don't dig me out about that. They don't, they're not comfortable with it, and it's not a personal dig. It's it's going. That's what happened. You were at fault for the goal. Just make sure next time you you're a bit more switched on from that set piece or or whatever. Um, and our boys have got got really good at it. Um, and we're starting to do some stuff with the nines to twelves around how they perceive our playing philosophy um, and then deliver getting comfortable in delivering back to one their parents so their parents understand what we're working on um, but also then sending that into us so that we can see what their understanding of the build is to create the finish um, and going well now you're miles some some of the boys are miles of what we think they know and when they're delivering it back you're going yeah you don't know what we're on about you and that's good for us because we know where they're at and what their understanding is so um yeah, I still, like I say, going back to those older players, not being able to have player-led stuff. I think if you've got good coaches and experienced coaches and ones that are are mindful, then then I think it can still happen. Um, I'm not a massive fan of that player-led stuff all the time, um, just because I think it can have that, that not lots going on. And I like sessions to be messy. If a session's, for me, in my opinion, if everything's going smoothly and there's... There's lots of success. Again, I talk about challenge point a lot. The challenge point's probably not high enough. So they've 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 mastered what they, or they've understood what you've taught them. They've understood the challenge. They've got there. Loads of success, great. Well, what's the next challenge point? Yeah. Yeah, it needs to be hard enough where they're engaged. Yeah. And that's where, like I say, you, you can add that again, that could be the, the differentiation in the players is that. For one kid, a challenge could be too hard and he gets demotivated. But another kid, he likes that tough challenge. Yeah. And and he might be, I suppose, what people would perceive maybe as old school. He loves the, the th- something that's too hard and goes, well, I'm going to get there. Yeah. Whereas maybe a lot of kids in the current generation are going, I want I want to get there the quickest way. Do, do you think there's enough support for the kids to go, you know, we talked there about the player-led approach and, you know, progressing through the age groups. I think there's enough kid uh, support for the players generally supported with that transition from kind of a player-led approach to more a coach-led approach because I feel like I see the, a lot of the observations I've made around that is you get to about under 14s and it's kind of very much yeah we're going to go player-led but then it's almost like boom cut it out yeah no I think there has to be a um they have to have a variety they can't just have they can't just have for example the Q&A all the time and then all of a sudden a bit of command comes in. They've got to have if it's got you got to have all of that. So myself as a coach, I would say when I first started coaching. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I was very command because the group of players I was working with, I went, you ain't, they ain't good enough. They, you need to do this. This is what's going to get you there. As you become maybe a better coach or... Um, you work with better players, you can go, well, I can start delving into more Q&A or some more guide and discovery, but you can't just go, well, I'm only going to be a Q&A coach. You've, I think you've got to be able to do all of them. Um, and 
there are there, there'll be ones that you're not very comfortable with. Some coaches won't be they they're not comfortable with going do that. They want to be the coach that goes well. Have you thought about this? I think and I think that's probably what's happening now is that that command style is 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 very I don't see it very often unless you like you say you get to the older age groups you see quite a lot more of command do this that that isn't quite good enough etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think the boys need that because like you say otherwise when they get to that age group where that comes in they go what's this he's I've never heard that before and and then they, and then they rebel or well I'm not going to play for him or they sulk or whatever so they need to have it do you think that it's almost a, a generational thing in terms of the coaches as well? Because obviously a lot of the coaches who uh, typically, if you like, your typical command staff coach is probably somebody who's a lot more experienced, probably somebody who's maybe gone through uh, an older pathway of coach education, if you like. You know, yeah. And obviously that's changed massively over the last kind of 10 or 12, 10 or 12 years where it is much more around this, this player-led approach. And I think the challenge for coaches obviously is recognising what type of interventions to use, when to use them and who to use them with. The why behind that as well, but also recognizing that if you're going to use the Q and A approach or whatever approach you're going to use, use it in an effective manner. So, you know, I've seen so many times where coaches will ask players questions, but they're always closed questions. So, what are you really learning from that? And you know, you made a point there about getting the players to kind of relay to you through analysis and through reflections around what their understanding is of what what's expected of them as part of the club philosophy or whatever else that may be and maybe not trusting the players enough to give them an answer that's genuine to them and authentic to them and more utilizing the closed questions if you like to kind of manage the conversation and direct it in a in a way where the coaches can almost satisfy their egos to say yeah they're on point with what I wanted to see. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You see it all the time, don't you? You, you, you get the, uh, the under, I don't know, under 10s or 11s and they'll all put their hand up and they just blurt the answers that they think you want to hear. Or they'll go, one kid will say that, and then that's, and you end up just getting there eventually because they all just blurt out things that they know. Um, and like I said, I think it's it's very, you have to be very skilled in your Q&A, like you say, to go, well, Make sure one that it's an open question because if it's not an open question, you might as well have just gone command and gone. That's how I want it done. Um, but you have to be very skillful um, and make sure that you can confuse the kid because if he if he if he answers it wrong two or three times, well he doesn't know the answer. So you need to tell him, or you need to guide him towards finding the answer. Well, what, I don't know. Go and ask. What do you think? Do you think which teammate do you think might know the answer to that, or who do you think does that really well? How, ask him how he solves that problem so yeah I think Q&A is is probably one of the easiest because you can get them to a point by just keep asking questions or no you don't know the answer and then quick coaches are quickly enough will give them the answer well then again what, why have you asked the question if you're if they don't know the answer don't give them it unless you they really need to know it at that point be 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 happy and be comfortable and go well they don't know the answer yet let's see if I can help them get there by the end of the session 100% also, you know, that piece around asking the question and giving them time to actually answer. You know, the amount of time I see coaches ask, ask a question and if they don't hear a response within two, three seconds, they just anticipate and assume, oh, the players don't know it, so I'm just going to fill the gap. It's like, I think it's almost part of the skill of asking those questions is is having the patience just to let the question, you know, fester for a second. Yeah. Let them it's think. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Silence is uncomfortable. Yeah. And you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. 
but in, in some ways, it's probably one of the, uh, if you like, most impactful coaching behaviours is to allow that silence. You know, and, and get people thinking, you know, in those uncomfortable moments, really get them thinking and get them to challenge themselves around, oh, what is the coach asking of me here? And even for, it's even an opportunity for the coach then to reflect, was that question the right question? So I think there's, there's so much in there. You know, it, yeah. But, you know, let, let's let's unpack your journey further. Obviously, you mentioned that, you know, you're at, you're at Watford at present. What are the biggest changes that you saw, obviously, going from Stevenage to Watford, obviously you've got foundation phase lead at Stevenage, foundation phase lead uh, to start off with, obviously at, at Watford. What, you know, what were the massive differences there? Was it what you was expecting? And, you know, what did you feel that Stevenage did really well that you wanted to bring with you to Watford? Um, first of all, both, I have to say both, uh, in the times that I was there, I thought, I've had, oh, like I say, when I was at Stevenage, I thought the programme was very, very good. And where I'm at now, I think it is very, very good. In terms of the differences, obviously you're going cat three to cat two. So facilities straight away, you're going, well, within a year, I, we, I was working in a dome. I've got a dome all the time now. Uh, and the, the luxury of it being heated. So it's not one of those cold domes where you're freezing all the time and you have to wear hat, gloves, snood, everything. It's it's a nice environment for the boys to, to, to work in. Um, so straight away facilities, but also just... Just the opportunities that we can give the boys uh, in terms of the games program. The games program is obviously a little bit better, in my opinion, from Cat Three to Cat Two because of the the clubs you get access to. Obviously, at the time when I went in 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 Swatford, we were in the Premier League, so you get access to the the Premier League games program as well. So the the festivals and playing the Cat Ones a bit more regularly. Which, when I was at Stevenage, it was yeah, yeah it's it's through your connections. It's like who do you know, um, right? You're playing, they might be playing, I don't know, Brighton and then Brighton are only taking one group. Well, we'll come and bring a team up wherever it is. We'll bring an extra one. So you've got two 7v7s going or whatever. Um, so that was probably the biggest challenges at Stevens was getting the games programme to a point where you weren't playing teams three times a year. So I remember going in and you'd have, you'd have your local ones all three times a year. You'd play Luton three times a year. You'd play MK Dons three times a year. You'd play Southend three times a year. You'd go, well, instead of playing them three times, well, let's play them twice. And in those extra ones, let's try and play a cat one or a cat two and and, and improve the games programme. So um, they're probably the first first two things, just resources, games programme, facilities. They're, they're the biggest changes. There's good people at both places. Obviously, the staff staffing levels that we have now are, are through the roof. Um, we've got two coaches with every age group, which is brilliant from from a player perspective um whereas when i was at stevenich it was like well you've got a lead coach and you might have a volunteer and that volunteer is sometimes he's there or she's there and sometimes they're working and you go well i can't really argue that you're working you're doing this for free um i thank you for your time but that's that's pretty much all you can do so um and there were some limitations there we will see always on like power league courts um so for the older age groups as much as it was good for like intensity and being really good in some tight spaces then when you saw them go 11 v 11 you went well you can't they can't open the pitch up they can't switch play effectively enough because they don't practice that range of pass often enough um so that was something that in the time i was there and we were there the people that were there at the time we had to improve that um whereas where i am now 
we've got a, a dome that is 110 yards by 75 yards. They're playing in realistic sized areas most of the time. Of course, they've got nights where we share share the dome with other teams and you, you may be a bit tighter, um, but we've got a good variety in, in, in the, the areas that we can use. Um, what was the second part of your question? Sorry, I know that was a, kind of the differences between the two. And yeah, and so what were some of the key things that you, you know, obviously... You, oh, that I took with me, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I was having a conversation with, with I met up with some of the, my old colleagues from, from Stephen yesterday, actually, and we were talking about why at that time we felt that the academy was successful. And that was because we had a clear vision of what, the way that we wanted the boys to play. Um, we had some really good people there that were always trying to make make the place better, never happy with where it was at and wanting to be and have that. I suppose when I first went in, it was like they'd probably just got to a point where they were recruiting players that they wanted rather than going, well, we'll have boys that were released from X, Y and Z because obviously they were quite a new academy. Um, I think when I went in, maybe the academy had been in existence four or five years. Um, so you're always inheriting players that maybe have been released from other clubs or are the best in the area but aren't quite at academy standard. And our challenge was that and our goal was right, well, we want to be one of the best cat frees in the area. Um, and I'd like to think in that time with with the people that we had running it in 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 Sally and Robbie that we we got there um, and we started to produce footballers. Um, players were getting in the first team, players were getting opportunities, players were going out on loan and doing well, um, players were getting sold um, to, to bigger clubs um, and it was a, a really good time. So that was down to, to the leadership that we had at the time going, well, this is our direction. Everyone bought into it. Everyone believed in it because I think at that time we'd all played in that system. We'd all played for that person. So, and we would believed in it because we'd seen how good it could be. So under Sarley, we'd all played for him. So I'd played for him. Steve had played for him. Yain had played for him. Uh, Tom Hart had played for him. So everyone had played for him and believed in his his way. Um, and we were able to coach it. Um, and it saw success at that time. Um, and in terms of what I took over, it was around, it was around just bringing in a bit more resilience into the boys. Um, having standards that were kind of high and, and challenging the boys to get there um, and having a, and just having a direction that you believe in. Um, so, yeah, that's that's probably what I've taken with me. Um, I, think, I think it's, re it's really important there, obviously, because, you know, it, it's clearly you had, a, you had a picture exactly of what you wanted to go out there and deliver. And obviously you mentioned a point earlier about when you first started with the college group, it was almost, well, where do I start? What's the foundational stages that I'm any, I'm, what's the first things I need to really cover with these players? You know, and, and that's the challenge, obviously, that a lot of players, so a lot of coaches do have, um, not just at the start of their journeys, but even as they go through in terms of, right, where do I start? So, you know, what, what would your advice be to coaches who are looking at that? Because, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like in that moment, you, it was quite a reactionary approach in terms of, right, this is what I've observed in games, as an example. So this is what I'm going to do the following session, as an example. You know, w was that the case? And you know, if if so, how how was that? Way it was. It was more. We tried to um, uh, uh, like think about where where are their shortcomings individually and collectively, or in in units. So yes, there would be some reactive stuff around 
well, in games, I don't know we, I don't know we might have been playing a four-three-three, whatever formation we were playing at the time, and going, well, that's where we keep getting beat, uh, or that's the problem we keep having, or that's where it keeps breaking down. So yeah, there would be some work around that and the team element, but a lot of it was right. Well, what do they need individually or within their unit? So we used to do a lot of stuff where we'd break off into unit stuff and go right. Well, the back four need this work. I don't know, just I don't know, sliding, stepping together one steps out the other shuffle around and close the door but that kind of stuff so there was that unit work but there was there was everything um yeah it was there was everything it was individual it was unit it was team um i won't lie there was there was some reactive reactive stuff around games um but it was it, again on that college program we had an identity that we obviously we had the elite group and that was the the kind of picture of what we wanted that they were playing the way we wanted them to play and it was right well how how close to that that can we get them um so still we had an idea of how we wanted our teams to play um because if a boy was going to step from group three to group two it was the same it's, it's no different to to the academy i guess um just to go back now your approach still be the same knowing what you know now or would there be some different considerations put into because one of the one of the kind of challenges for coaches a lot of the time is right we're going to have a syllabus we're going to have a curriculum of some sort but actually how do we how do we decide on where in that curriculum first of all what's in the curriculum what's in the syllabus and yeah. second of all uh, how do we then decide what part of that should go first and last and and, and and wherever else it may fit so you know what are your thoughts on that yeah curriculums are, are tough aren't they because you can see some you can every coach if you're skilled enough can see the i don't know let's say it's build well they, they're really good at that we probably don't need that at this point in time or individually they don't need that but that's the syllabus um so our one at present is very very open um it might be build but it's your interpretation of what the players need and that's what gives us our freedom um because obviously in the build there's loads of stuff it could involve the goal it could involve just the fullback it could involve how we get some rotation in midfield to get the ball into that middle third of the pitch. Um, so I think having that flexibility in your syllabus is what's key and having some opportunities where you can go off canvas, if you like, um, and having review weeks or weeks where you go, actually, there's nothing planned. As coaches, what do the boys need? Or what do the players need? And that might be your opportunity to do some unit stuff. It might be um, it's team stuff, but... Yeah, I th we've we've we we are now. It's a lot of it still. We have over an hour's worth of our individual work every week, and that's it. Obviously, in small groups, but they're getting loads of individual work because in academy football, it's all about the individuals. Your teams don't won't follow through. It's very rare that you'll get a team of sixteen players, and in four years' time, all sixteen are still there. Um, it it just doesn't happen very often. Um, so you're always we're always trying to think about how do we get the individuals working to, the, to their best potential. Um, but I think syllabuses are tough because <laughs> you want to be out at some weeks, you just want to go, no, stuff the syllabus. We need to do that because that's, we've seen that for the last four or five weeks that they're struggling with that or technically they're struggling with this. Um, syllabus you can have your themes your topics and your areas and i think i think a really key point that you've made there as well is, is allowing the coaches have a, a element of freedom and flexibility to interpret theme or the or, or the or the topic if you like um, in a way that they have observed 
relevant yeah. to the team, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think the other key piece, obviously, you know, having those themes obviously gives you some structure, gives you some guidance around that. But yeah, it's a framework, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's 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 a it's a just a start point for that week. Hundred percent. But I think also within that, it's also the, you know recognizing that benefits of the syllabus is obviously that you, you try and cover a little bit of everything. Um, but whereas if you go with the reactionary approach, some some things just might never get covered. And just because yeah. some things are going well, uh, even with a reactionary approach. You could you could still you could still interpret that in a different way and say right okay this is where we're going really well but let's let's try and crank it up a notch and let's try and get it to the next level if that makes sense and I think what the syllabus allows you to do is like you said has that framework but I think where I have found it to work best is almost right well here's our framework what's most relevant for the players this week as long as we've made a commitment that actually throughout the course of the season or the or this block of work we're going to cover all the relevant themes within the syllabus if that makes sense and not necessarily in a specific order but we'll prioritize those themes and those topics in relation to what we are seeing so it's almost pre-planned almost semi-reactionary as well yeah yeah we use our review weeks to do that in terms of and when we're doing i know let's say for example there was a period of time where especially in the 7v7 stuff um, teams would press with a three so our build was difficult times because we played with a back two and a goalie so it's it's almost like you're straight into a 3v3 scenario well how do we and we saw problems over like that block of work for the last four or five weeks every time teams pressed with a three because obviously when you're reactionary the team that you played last week you're probably not playing again this coming week so you may not have the same problem so when we're reviewing what we're going to do in those review weeks is right well what what problems are we seeing against, I don't know, we might have had Fulham, then Arsenal, then Tottenham, then whoever. Have we seen similar problems? Right, well, that's probably what we need to work. Because if we're seeing it against four different teams, probably that's where we need to work. So, and again, that's the skill that the coaches have to have with the ones that I'm working with and myself is going, well, what are we seeing going wrong? And use those review weeks. We have two review weeks. Use those review weeks to go, right, these are the problems that we've seen. This is how we think you can overcome it. And it again, it's still linking to our syllabus, um, but it just gives us a bit of freedom um, to be, like you say, a little bit reactionary because you need that sometimes. If 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 your problem doesn't come up for for twelve weeks in the syllabus because you've got to wait for it to come back round again, well, at what point do you solve the help them solve the problem? So that 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 that's where I think we've got our our syllabus in a good place. Some of the key different, obviously, I think there's a challenge of it because I think you need the skills regardless of what level of the game you're working at, regardless of what age group you're working at. But what do you think are the most prevalent skills that you probably require at the maybe the foundation phase as opposed to that YDP phase? Um, I think the, the the skills that I like to see in coaches are that area working with the kids is they keep it fun. They're not afraid to make a fool of themselves at times. They can keep the kids engaged. They build really good relationships. They keep the kids in love with the game because if they're going to stay in the academy system for however long they're going to stay in, if they're going to stay in at nine all the way through to potentially having it as a career, because obviously at nine, nine to four, nine to sixteen, it's not you shouldn't be perceiving it as oh I'm going to be a footballer. It's you're just in a really good place learning football. 
Um, and I've always liked that way that Jamie Carragher kind of interpreted it, go, I see it as my son's getting free private education. And that's the way I like to see, I think academy football should be seen as that. You're getting some of the best coaching around. It won't always be the best because there'll always be someone that's maybe not in academy football that's a really good coach. Um, but you're getting some of the best coaching around and the best opportunities to play against some of the best players. So it probably gives you a really good opportunity to potentially have that as a career. So the things that I like to see, so and like I say, it's a long, long journey. It's a if you're lucky enough and you make a debut at 19, not a nine-year-old's got a 10-year journey before he potentially makes a debut. Um, and if it gets too serious too soon, I think some kids will lose that love and I want them to stay in love with football. So the ones that work in the foundation phase have to keep it fun, but also have to be able to guide them and, and help them develop. Um, and then obviously YDP, you're looking for that that greater knowledge of going, well, how they've obviously got a lot of skills already. Can you identify the ones that they're lacking? Can you get them to the next level? And they may need a little bit more experience or a little bit more expertise or have a really good get tactical understanding to get the boys to the next level. Um, whereas obviously in the foundation phase, it's heavily technical, um, ball mastery, 1v1 dominance and, and a little bit of tactical. You don't need to have a great 11v11 understanding because they're not going to play it. Um, but as long as you can understand the game a little bit, um, you'll, you'll be fine. Um, so, yeah, that's what I like to see in the coaches is that as the, old, the older they get, it's the, the finer, finer details and getting them to the next, that, that, that small, those smaller margins. Obviously, when you're working with nines, they need to learn so much that just drip feed little bits and bobs in and, and don't overcomplicate it. Don't make it too professional too soon. Um, keep it fun. Keep them engaged. So that's what I like to see. one-to-one coaching is very difficult because yes you can teach them uh the technique but to teach them the how and when and why in a 1v1 a one-to-one coaching if it's me and you i can't teach you that at that time because there's no there's no decision to be made i find that really difficult so um yes it's good for their technique yes it's good for them to to build confidence in doing a skill, doing a, a trick, whatever. Um, but then that smaller group work, I love seeing some of the coaches, like I say, I see a lot of coaching. I know a lot of our, a lot of academy boys will now go and do their own private stuff. But I much prefer seeing it when it's like two, three, four of them and they're just getting loads of goes, but there's a decision to be made and there's actually a real life scenario in front of them. Um, and I think that's that's what it's, what's important is going, well, how do you keep it looking real and how, because I, like I say, most kids can do skills with no opposition and they can do them to a really high level, but being able to do it when you know there's pressure there and the, the kid isn't just going to let you run past him or he's not going to let you do your little Maradona turn or your step over without trying to win it back or kick you um, is a different skill altogether. So 
I think there's a there's a place for it, but to say it's probably I don't want to go any further. I'll probably keep my mouth shut a little bit. Um, yeah, there's some good work being done, but I think there needs to be. I, I much prefer seeing the smaller group stuff. So just just to build on that, then obviously it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, um, a bit murky murky waters there, aren't they? Because you know a lot of people are going to get you know very uh, offended in some ways and you know course, very yeah. about this sort of thing. So. Uh, what, what do you what do you think it takes for someone to be able to classify them as a specialist themselves as a specialist in that though? Because you see a lot, don't you? Now where you know this person, they've never worked in that quote unquote elite environment. But they call themselves an elite football coach, or they've never worked, you know, they've never worked with high level players. But now they call themselves a ball mastery specialist, or you know, I, I don't know. There's, you know, it's a hot it's a hot debate right now. It is a hot debate. I don't know. I, I, would would I be? I, I suppose I work in an elite environment because it's an academy football. But does that make me an elite coach? I don't know. It, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't class myself as an elite coach. I would say that I'm a coach with good experiences. But I suppose elite is when you work at the top top level. Or so, I suppose top top level. So if I'm going to be an elite coach, I need to work in the Premier League. Would you call yourself a foundation based specialist? Probably not yet. No, I don't think. I think there are people that have done it longer than myself um, and have had probably more successes than myself I would say I'm just a foundation oh a, a, a good coach <laughs> um, maybe that's just me being humble of it but um, I don't really know what how you become I don't know what classes you to be a specialist is it 10 years experience is it 20 years experience is it whatever I don't know um, yeah I think I to class yourself as it, I think, I, I, I suppose I could sit here and go, yeah, I'm an academy specialist. But unless you see me work, you'd have your own opinions of it. So to class yourself, I don't think people should be classing themselves as it. And I, they probably you should just say I'm a one, I'm a good one to one coach. I'm a very, uh, I've, I've, I'm a, I'm a one to one coach. That's it. Yeah. That's my. I think you're spot on. I think I think it's all well and good, you know, identifying that you might have certain strengths or certain areas of interest or. Um, areas in which I, can't, I don't really want to use the word but uh areas that you specialize in yeah just you yeah, specialize yeah. in it doesn't make you a specialist yeah oh yeah there's, there's like i say you go there's coaches out there you go well i don't know i've got my son now he's three and a half if i wanted to get really good at skills i wouldn't coach him because i haven't got skills if i wanted to think we get good at passing it, 1v1 defending, all that kind of stuff, then yeah, that's that's something I can help him with. There are people, like you say, that are more specialised in that ball mastery, that trickery, that those other bit elements that that aren't maybe my areas of, of expertise or specialism, because as an individual, I wasn't very good at skills. So my, why would I then class myself as a specialist of that? Um, so yeah, I agree with you. There's, there are people that are, are specialising in different things, um yeah i suppose i don't know where the classification of ima specialist comes in i'm not too sure um but like i say there are with the one-to-one -one stuff i think there is some there is some really good work going out there there is but i think i think during that covid period everyone became a one-to-one -one coach in there because that was a way to potentially make money or start businesses it, you you see the longevity now since covid has moved on you've seen the ones that are still around you're going 
well, yeah, you've obviously you're doing well because people believe in what you're doing. You're you're making players better, and they're the ones that are the ones that you could go. Yeah, he's starting to become a specialist in that area. Um, I think there's a place for both. I grew up in an era and coached, started coaching in an era where block practices and drills were probably the way. And I still think there's a place for them. Um, as long as you coach it properly and it, it, it has a realism to it, I think there's some really good stuff. I think if you if, if people did a passing drill, they'd go, that's old, that's old school. Well, it, it worked. It created players. So why what what stops it working now? Yes, if you don't add the finer details and you don't show the boys where it fits into the game, then yeah, it's not going to work because everyone can just pick up a session off YouTube or off the internet. There's so many coaching companies out there now, isn't there? Those coaching websites, you can pick up a session. Doesn't mean you can coach that session. You might be able to facilitate the start of it, but then how far you take it, that's that's you as the coach. How good is you as are you as the coach? So I think there's a place for both. I think for boys learning new techniques and building confidence in being able to do the technique, then that's where your opposed stuff comes in. Yes, I can do it. But if you then go, right, we've well, got to do it straight away against an opponent. Well, if he just gets failure all the time and goes, well, I don't, I don't know, let's say it's your step over. If he doesn't know that his foot has to go from the outside to the inside and around it, like anti-clockwise, then he's, how's he going to pick that up before if he's getting tackled every time? And doesn't get a chance to actually complete the skill. So I think there's a place for both. And I think the modern, the modern, I suppose, learning takes you away from that. Um, and I think it's probably perceived as a bit old school now. Um, but I grew up in that old school era. I'm, I'm 35, but I, I probably have a lot more old school in me than new school.
take bits from everybody and take the bits that you like and want to be um, and be authentic to yourself. Um, I think that was probably that would probably be the uh, and it might I don't know I might be still be in the same place I might be five years ahead of myself I don't know um, who knows but that would probably be my bit of advice to myself would be 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 the version of me not a, a version of somebody else. Be your, be your best self. Hundred percent. I think it's a spot on. Great message as well. Adam, just want to say massive thank you for your time today, man. Really appreciate it, and um, wish you all the best, man. No, have a good Christmas, and uh, yeah, we'll catch up in the new year. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.